Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast with me, Ruby Warrington. This week's episode features an interview with Biet Simkin, my co-founder and the co-host of the Club Soda NYC event series that I've been running in New York since 2016. Biet is a badass, and I do not use this term lightly to describe her, meditation coach and spiritual teacher. She's also 11 years sober and has so much to say on how the spiritual path intersects with the sober path and everything in between. Now, I warn you, there are a few potentially triggering things that come up in our conversation. Part of Biet's MO and part of what we were doing with so with the Club Soda NYC series as well was to really get people to feel okay with getting out of their comfort zone, to get people feeling okay with getting into some confrontational situations between them and their belief systems um, and to actually utilize that as a way to grow and expand our awareness, which is to say there may be some things that are spoken in this episode where you're like, what? They can't say that. But I urge you in these moments to look at what's coming up and to sit with it and listen to the conversation as it unfolds. Biet speaks of spiritual topics in a way that's kind of like street and rock and roll, and it's very different, and I'm sure you're going to actually enjoy um, what she shares in this episode. I also partnered with Dry Sparkling for this episode, a botanical bubbly that's a perfect non-alcoholic option for celebrations big and small. Just because you're not drinking doesn't mean your social life has to lose its fizz. And Dry was created for sober curious souls in search of a grown-up alternative to a regular synthetic tasting sodas. Crafted with just four ingredients, Dry's culinary-inspired flavors include vanilla, lavender, ginger, cucumber, blood orange, watermelon, vanilla, Fuji apple, and Rainer cherry. You can look for Dry in your local store, shop online at Amazon, and visit drysoda.com for more info about this tasty and sophisticated Bev. Biet, hello my dear, how are you? I'm so good. It's so good to be together. It's so good to be together. It's been a while since we hung out. It's true, which is bizarre. <laughs> it is bizarre, considering we created this amazing thing together, which has made such ripples in the world. And I'm talking about Club Soda NYC, the event series that we co-founded in early 2016. That's right. I think it's just because it's going through a bit of a metamorphosis, right? It's going through a metamorphosis. And I've been saying this to people who are asking about it. And I'm going to share it for posterity here on this podcast. We're at the time of recording, which is late June 2019. Um, our last event was back in end of September last year, I believe. Yeah. Our psychedelics and sobriety event. And I do actually have mm. a video of the live stream we did. So I'll include oh, yeah. that in the show notes so people can check out what that was all about. Um, but I've been saying to people, well, you know, since then, Biet had a baby, then I had a book out, and then Biet had a book out. So between those kind of big life events, we haven't really got it together to host one of our events for a while. Because they turn into like, they had become a pretty big deal. We're having like 200 plus people at these events. Big productions. Yeah, they're big productions. And I think actually the size of them has, it's grown beyond its own size. So I think the yearning is higher, actually. Do you know what I mean? I like, agree. We're doing these big events, but I think the yearning is for them to be even bigger. So I think what we're playing with is how does the Trinity uh, collaborate with us to allow us to spread this awesome shit to... The Trinity. 
yeah, the as Trinity. In like, like in the well, Matrix. In the, yeah, well, in the work that I teach, right, if you look at my book, there's the law of the third force, right? Like the, there's, there needs to be a third force. Mm. And you and I are, mm-hmm. you know, um, a beauty of two. We are partners. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's like this amazing third piece that is going to, you know, collaborate with us and yeah. something very magical is going to happen. Yeah. So I guess this could be a bit of a shout out as we begin this podcast together. Um, yeah, we want to we want to grow Club Soda NYC to be even bigger than it has been to be able to take it across the country, around the world. Why not? And bring the experiences we've been creating to a really wide audience. So if you're out there and you're listening and it sounds like something you might want to be involved in. Right, and you're like amazing. <laughs> you're amazing. You have to be and you as sh- amazing and as you the like, two of us. And you show up <laughs> and you can actually do the thing. Yeah. Get in touch. <laughs> yeah, get in touch. Show us your superpowers. So a little bit about how Biet and I met as a bit of a background. Um, it was around, yeah, it was early, early 2016. I'd been kind of toying with this idea of like what exists in between sort of abstinence-based recovery programs and the way I'm grappling with my own sober curiosity, which at the time was just kind of like experience by experience, week by week. Like, how does it feel to drink? How does it feel to not drink? Oh, that feels really good. So what happens if I do more of that? Mm. And there didn't seem to be at the time much that was kind of in the in-between space, meaning anywhere that I as a sober curious person could go and share about my experiences with other sober curious people. And it was around that time I met you, Biet. We did an interview with you for my online magazine, The mm-hmm. Numinous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that you were sober. And I thought you'd be a good person to have this conversation with because I, I figured you were, you were pretty rock and roll. You were talking about meditation and spiritualities in ways that were kind of outside of the very sort of traditional or very kind of known ways of even approaching our, our lives as spiritual beings. And I thought, hmm, she's a fellow edge pressure let's have a conversation about this and immediately as soon as I started talking about wanting to create something in that space you were on board yeah and I was really thrilled partly because I also was very nervous about doing something in this space um and how it might be received and perceived by people who are in the sober community in the sober space so I was really relieved or kind of buoyed I suppose by the fact that you were well then I guess eight years now you're almost 11 years sober that you were really down to kind of expand the conversation Mm. and I wonder what it was at that time that 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 made you say yes that made you collaborate want to collaborate with me on this like what did you where did you see the opportunity where did you where did you see the gap how did you think we could answer an unmet need Mm. you know I mean it's a real thing wanting to have access to comfort, ease, confidence, and those things aren't granted without effort. But I learned, it's so funny because I was like recently on a subway train with someone who's an active drinker and they were trying to tell me the solution to my problems was drinking. <laughs> I was like, this is an incredible conversation. But um, A friend? A friend? No, no, this was like an acquaintance. I, okay. I just met them. Okay, but they okay. were trying to persuade me that drinking was a good idea and I thought that was very funny. But mm. um, mainly, I was what I shared with them in that moment was that 
I actually don't have a problem with my problems today. Like mm. the fact that I'm a flawed human or the fact that I'm afraid or the fact that I actually encompass the entire journey. Like when you read the Buddha's journey, oh, how he left the Brahmin people or then he like went off into the desert to become a fakir and stand for months in starvation to like find God. And, and then he, you know went to the marketplace and became a wealthy fat guy and like learned about becoming like a businessman and then he like fell in love with Kamala you know the story and then eventually he becomes this river man with no wants or desires I think that for me what I realized was that like that's not how the story is going to work for me the story for me is not unfolding in a linear fashion where like then I'm a fat businessman and then now I'm the river man like to me they're all happening at the same time and I wanted to share with the world that message that, like, you don't actually need to fix anything. You don't need to recover from your fears to be able to have radical confidence in a conversation. And if you're waiting for that to happen, it, you're, the day will never come, so you may as well just give up now. And if you're using alcohol to pretend it's not happening, you're also lying because you're fucking afraid. Mm-hmm. And I wanted us to create a space for people where they could learn that being afraid and being vulnerable and getting weird and getting authentic with strangers and meditating in public, which and may it sometimes include some screaming or some grunting or some <laughs> breath work. May sometimes when Biet's around, it, gen- <laughs> it generally does. Yeah, and like long, strange eye gazing <laughs> scored by my music. Like I think I want I wanted us to create a container where that conversation can be had. And I I thought you and I were the perfect duo for that because we were also very different and we were coming at it from completely different, you know, angles Mm. and we had different passions for what we wanted to bring to the world. And I thought together we would do a good job of that. And as it turned out, we we did. did. Yeah, we did. So I suppose what you're saying is that you wanted to and you were intrigued by and excited by the possibility of offering the rawness of sobriety to people who might not necessarily have considered that for themselves because they hadn't reached a kind of like tragic rock bottom where they had to get sober. So for people who are just kind of questioning like, whoa, alcohol, is it getting in the way? Isn't it? To really create an experience Mm. where people could see, Mm. oh shit, yeah, it kind of is. It's getting in the way of this vulnerability, of this rawness, of this realness, of this acceptance of like my flawed perfection, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think that's it. And also this yearning for giving people the possibility of actually remembering what it was like to be five, to be Mm. six, Um, because we lose that. And then we just are like so uncomfortable all the time. And it's like, do you remember when you were just a kid and like gummy bears were exciting? You know, that's, you know. I often say that to people as well. I'm like, imagine if you were just like, what was it? We didn't need alcohol as kids to feel like we mm. could express ourselves and we could be free and we could be wild and we could be weird and we could cry when we needed to cry and we could have a tantrum. We just did those things because they're part of being human. And then it just slowly over the years gets conditioned out of us. And we learn that it's not okay to be all those things and that there's something wrong with us if we are those things, you know? And that there's something that needs to be fixed. And we look for the fix. Yep in alcohol drugs I, I keep finding myself doing that and I'm really trying to stop doing that alcohol and drugs alcohol is a drug 
So I'm just, I'm just trying to say that, and finding it in drugs, including alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> we have to say it though, because I think our, our society has really made alcohol a very, um, the same way that they've done with sugar and with flour and grain, mm. which I think mm. in our country specifically is very, very toxic. And they've normalized it. Alcohol, like having a Bloody Mary on the on your way to a flight to San, you know San Diego like at 12 noon is totally acceptable like you're allowed to do that for some reason and the way you picked San Diego why was that just like a really, I don't know I might be really random a really random place like an email earlier that I was supposed to go to San Diego <laughs> so I was like San Diego you know but you're flying somewhere and you just you just have a Bloody Mary and it's like mm. oh and you also eat a burger and fries and like follow it with a shake or you know it's, it's like toxic waste like you may as well and I'm not free from you know unfortunately I still some sometimes consume some of these toxic products <laughs> only to my own personal regret. I have yet to eat like five bowls of pasta in a row. I mean, not and like feel great. Well, not like in one day, but like, you know, Monday mm, and Tuesday mm, and then Wednesday and then Thursday. It's like bread product number one, bread product number two, bread product number three, and a little bit of sugar number four. And then on Thursday, if I'm not feeling homicidal slash suicidal, it's very <laughs> unlikely. Like I'm probably both, you know, <laughs> by the end of the week. <laughs> Which is not to shame anybody who loves their pasta and their bread. Because yeah, but it's working are, for you, great. If it's working you know? for you, great. I don't have the same the same gluten intolerances that Piet does. Yeah, and she I'm can handle that. I've watched right. her house pasta and pizzas, and I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> but you're right. It's like I think, and I'm, I'm curious. So uh, that article came out on the New York Times recently. It was talking about the new sobriety, and yes. some people in the sober, sober curious abstinence space were kind of like, well, that's I, that's bullshit. You can't have the new sobriety. Sobriety is a thing that for many people they have to work really hard and there's a real sense of kind of honor and ownership of the concept of sobriety and you know I shared you were 11 years sober and I wondered what you think about this kind of widening or broadening of the conversation around sobriety yeah I hate to break it to you like it's bad news you know it is hard work and if you're walking into this thinking like oh this is cute and they're cute and Ruby's blonde and you know Biet's brunette and like I'm gonna stop drinking <laughs> like you're you're fucking in for it because if you have a thing for drinking that means that you also have a thing for lying to yourself and it means you also have a thing for uh, covering up your feelings it means you have a thing for um covering up your true desires in life and you're in for a huge um you know lot of awakening and some of the awakening will be around oh wow like I'm not actually who I've been saying I am my career trajectory should completely shift or maybe some of it is wow I'm in the wrong relationship or no relationship at all and it's because of lies and uh resentments I have towards parental figures or whatever mm. and some of it's going to be oh um you know, I actually have beliefs around money, career, sex, sexuality, community, and et cetera, that are blocking me from my full potential in life, et cetera. Et cetera. So anyway, it's going to be a big journey. Uh, you don't just like wake up, get sober, and all of a sudden you're you at five at a party <laughs> eating onion rings. Like that's not the way it happens. It's actually a long, treacherous process which is why you know there's the 12 steps and now I guess Russell Brand has also rebranded it in mm. a different way so mm -hmm, like you can work mm -hmm. them any way you want but listen if you think that you can just like get sober 
and then not be confronted by your internal demons. That's why we're here. You know, we're here to, you know, kind of knock on the door of your brain and be like, hey, no, that's not the way it's going to work. You know, so we have some solutions for you. We have some books that may help you on your journey because it's going to hurt, you know, and you'd be... I remember like someone saying to me when I first got sober, she was like, you want to do something that's surprising, Biet? She's like, just don't drink. She's like, that would be really surprising to all of us. And not I, least to you. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah. And to you, like, it'll be surprising. She's like, if you want to surprise the world, just don't drink. That would be the most surprising thing you could do. Mm. You know, it's a super rebellious act. It is. So I suppose in terms of, you know, broadening this out and inviting more people into experience sobriety what you're saying is we're going to have more people on this path of self-knowledge self-awareness hopefully Mm self-forgiveness um and and yeah personal like a deeper personal development than we're actually seeing in many other areas of the wellness space and i really i mean i have definitely found that or i really truly believe that it's like there are so many gurus I'm doing air quotes gurus out there telling us like this is the way to enlightenment and actually Mm. I feel like the simple or not so simple act of quitting using numbing substances that's what's going to do it for you you know right so I get so my thinking uh, you know (laughs) in answer to a to I remember actually when I was talking to my mom about my book coming out and I was like oh I'm kind of worried about what you know people might say particularly in the more in like the 12 step and the absent the recovery space and I kept coming back to asking people to quit drinking and get real can never be a bad thing it can just never be a, a bad thing like they can't that can't ever no be the wrong thing to be putting out into the world <laughs> that's what it all. comes down to you know not at all because it's it's shocking it's rebellious and it's also just I think a lot of people haven't considered it you know like when mm. I was getting sober and you know some of my mentors at the time were like you know what you should do is get completely sober and I was like yeah but like I can have some whiskey sometimes like or like a glass of wine or whatever and they were like no no what we recommend is like really that you just stop drinking and I was just like that's radical like it never I thought they were insane I was like what do you Mm. think I'm a fucking care bear like I'm just gonna not drink ever again and so to think that 11 high on rainbows yeah like what am I supposed to like drink rainbows or some shit like go stick it you know and you know I had so much I had so much identification, which, you know, is in my book. Like, I was just so identified with being a drunk and being um, dark and being sexy. And and I associated being bad with being so cool. And now I look at all these words like cool and dark and, you know, um, and none of them seem appealing to me at all. Mm. Um, I feel like, Mm. of course, I'm going to be dark and cool and all of these things because unfortunately I'm human and so as a human I have to be all things there's nothing that I can do to stop being all the things that one can be you can't shut down one part of your rainbow back to the rainbow Mm. analogy Mm. and not shut down the whole fucking thing so Mm -hmm. as much as I've tried I've tried to shut down being bad or I've tried to shut down being a bitch or I've tried to shut down being judgmental and it's like it's not happening. It's not going to happen. And one day it finally dawned on me that my enlightenment wasn't dependent on that. Thank mm. God. Mm. Mm. 
And I was like, I get to be like Zen AF and 100% with everything that makes me broken and all my tragedies and all my loss and all my, you know, lack of confidence, insecurity. Oh, and I was just like, the more I can share that with people and just pull my, you know, my dick out or whatever you want to call it, like just out into the world and just share it with you. You know, I don't even have a dick, but just, you know, share That's my That's not what vagina. happens at our events, by the way. Yeah. We don't share our Only our vaginas. Our vaginas. Yeah. We don't actually share our vaginas either. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, you've mentioned a couple of times and I mentioned to you, you had a book out um, and it's called Don't Just Sit There, which has to be about the best title for a book on meditation I think I've ever heard. Thank you. <laughs> So don't just sit there. Like if you have a practice, if you are in, if you are on this path of seeking what it means to be a spiritual being, have a human experience, get off your mat and actually live it in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that title? And also the, the book is, as we were discussing before we got on, it's kind of a workbook that takes, takes the reader through what you call the 44 laws of ex- human experience. The 44 Laws of Human Experience. So if you could tell us a bit about that title and then what these 44 laws are. Why they're 44? Like that kind of thing. Sure. (laughs) Um, You know, the idea is I've been, my father was an awakened teacher and I studied with him my whole life. And what he taught was a a lens work called fourth way work. And fourth way is little known. And most of the people who are scholars in it are like over the age of 80. And a lot of them also like don't, fully get it like there's a lot of people who just kind of missed it you know Mm. because you can miss it because it's real work and with real work you actually need to be in a state of love to taste it you can't taste it unless you're in a state of love so many people got it intellectually so they're sitting around reading the books and they're like really heady and into it but not many of them had their hearts broken open by it and I was, I did have my heart broken open by this work and it was gifted to me by my, by my father and then I continued on in his lineage after I got sober. And it's, um, it's an ancient work, so it's not mine. And there are these laws, it says, in the work. And the beautiful thing about fourth way work is that it's, it's a map and it's a template. It's not prescriptive. Like, it's not saying, like, this is how it is. It's just saying, okay, we've observed that it's this way And it's been passed down to us that it's this way. So take this information, apply it to your everyday life. Use it as a lens to process ancient texts, study, you know, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and, and travel the world and use it as a lens to see your own sexual relationships. Use it as a lens to see your own business interactions. And as you apply it, verify for yourself if it's true. Never, ever take the word of your teacher as truth. Just go experience it for yourself. And so this work is experiential, really. And it's a template. If you know what these 44 laws are, you understand, in fact, or what at least I understood, was, wow, I'm under these laws. These laws are undeniably working against me, Mm. and they're a part of the the grain of my life. When I wake Mm. up, that's what's happening. And if I don't make effort then I will be under these laws for the rest of my life. Mm. So it's about knowing the laws so that you can break the law. Yeah, well, (laughs) you don't don't even have to break it. Like, as soon as you know the law, it no longer affects you. It's sort of like with, you know, uh, what's her name? Dorothy, you know, it's like 
there's no place like home. Like, mm. she just clicks her heels. Like, mm. as soon as you remember that there even is a home, mm. then you can't be fooled by the thing that isn't home because you've remembered what home is. Right, I see. Okay. I think that makes sense. And then she's like, I'm melting. Ah. That's like all your fucking character defects and all your fears and all your insecurities and all your wrong beliefs that are ruining your life. Mm. Everything disintegrates to mm. the ground. Mm. And you didn't really have to do much to do that. You just, well, you just had to see what an asshole you were. But you had to observe and observe and observe. Right? I see, yeah. So the laws are like, like you said, they're a lens through which to view our human experience. Yeah. So that we can work with the laws and we can work around the laws and we yeah. can kind of just like, and what's the word? Navigate better, I suppose. Yeah, well, we're not asleep to them, mm. right? So mm-hmm. if I know that I'm vain, mm. then I'm kind of not vain anymore because mm. my self-awareness kind of annihilates the problem in and of itself. Mm. Which in a way, it's kind of the way you're describing this. It's how I think about this idea of being sober curious too. It's like Mm. once you've got sober curious, once you've actually stepped outside of that dominant drinking culture, that paradigm of of consuming alcohol, once you step outside of it and you begin to observe it with a kind of beginner's mind, you can no longer interact with it in the same way. You can no longer be hoodwinked by it. You're only ever then making a conscious choice to opt into it. Mm. That may be varying degrees of difficulty depending on the level to which you've become addicted and enthralled to mm-hmm. alcohol in particular and other drugs of course but um but yeah it's a similar concept right like yes. of stepping outside of like oh now I see what's going on now I can be consciously aware of how I'm mm-hmm. behaving interacting etc etc yeah and that takes great effort you it know does. what you did was really like you know very courageous mm-hmm. by walking out on a limb and saying like I'm gonna it's it's hard to do because mm-hmm. it's actually and it's very it can be very lonely and I think that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why you know we started Club Soda mm-hmm. NYC is because we thought this could be lonely and you know at, this is a good beginning and we I don't think we meant it when we started Club Soda we didn't have these books we didn't have yeah. these templates of okay well this is actually laid out the steps of what you do but I do believe actually sober curious and don't just sit there are incredible handbooks for that journey. So if you were like, okay, I'm going to do this, that would be a good place to start. The two of those things together. So can you share a couple of, a little bit about the different laws, maybe a couple of the laws that might specifically apply to a person's relationship with substances? Oh, sure. Substances. Yeah. Or even the idea of kind of escapism or numbing out, you know, not Mm. wanting to feel... Yeah, um, I mean, there's so many, yeah. but one of them is the law of buffers. That's definitely one where we, we buffer reality because we'd actually go mentally insane if we were to not have buffers. The buffers are there to protect us. Mm. And so if you are someone who's heavily drinking and you're listening to this podcast, it's like, thank God, you know, because we don't know how many people out there without alcohol or heroin or cocaine or whatever it is you've found uh, would would kill themselves from the pain that they've been put through on this planet. You know, it, in my case, my whole family had died, Sands, my brother and my father. I was very, very sad, very depressed. And I didn't have, like, a lexicon. I didn't have an alphabet to explain how sad I was. And when I discovered alcohol and drugs, it, it saved me. It was like th- the first time I felt like I could take a minute to just live without the oppressive sadness that had befallen me from all the tragedies that I had been through. And 
What I didn't know then, though, was that more and more tragedies were going to come my way because the alcohol was bringing in what in my book is called the law of accident. Mm. And the law of accident means that now I'm under a set of laws where my life is actually not moving in the direction that it's set to move in. And I'm moving in... There's no such thing as the wrong direction, Mm. but there's away from your essence. And I was moving away from essence. And when you move away from essence, you fall under the law of accidents. So my house burnt down. My daughter died of sudden infant death syndrome. Um, You know, I got into several car accidents. My head went through the windshield. You know, the long, the laundry list goes on and on of accident. Um, There was constantly things going on. I got arrested. You know, it was just crazy town. So if you're listening to this too, and you're like, that's me. And it doesn't have to be at that extreme too. Mm. Like I know someone who's recently been in my life who's under the law of accident and it's constantly going through th- like the the landlord will just shut the door and she can't back get get back into her apartment and all of a sudden she'll like be at the store and she'll forget her iPhone and it'll be 3 hours away and it's like just subtle things that are making her life more difficult so you'd think it's like not a big deal but it is because th- when you're away from essence you fall under this law mm. but when you're in line with essence it's like oh and then I walk to Starbucks which you know, it could be special or not special. <laughs> and then right then and there, I was in Starbucks. And then, oh, my God, you know, Ariana Huffington appeared. And her and I are now blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? It's like life flows in this incredibly just delicious, abundant fashion when we're walking in essence. But to do that, we actually have to let go the thing that's causing us to be under the law of accident. And alcohol. For for sure, I'm sure many people listening at whatever stage in their sober or sober curious journey will be familiar with that cycle of drama that alcohol right. seems to create. <laughs> you know, I feel like the law of accidents could also be called the, the law of drama. <laughs> totally. You know? It's just like, oh, another thing, <laughs> shit, face in hand, like, oh, another thing, ah, uh, I forgot this, mm. or I messed up that, or I fell over, literally. Right. Like, so, yeah, it seems like, and I think what you were saying, you know, was in a way there it's totally understandable that people find these substances and these ways of not feeling their pain Mm. because there's so much pain and we have so few ways in which to address it that are truly humane and supportive and um witnessing Mm. and empathetic we have, a, a, you know, an array of sort of suppressive therapies that mm-hmm. may be prescribed by our doctors. Mm. And then we have other medications, which we will find, which we, our, our psyche will find no matter what when we're in that level of pain, that the kind of pain that you described of immense grief and loss and separation. And so I think when you were saying, thank God for these things, for people who are out there in pain, it was, we need ways to manage and to bear that kind of pain. And sadly, many of the ways that we have are also going to bring us more pain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what can we, how can we, I think part of my work going forward and like what we've begun with Club Soda NYC, but is really thinking about, well, how can we actually help people to bear their pain? It's not even about like canceling the pain or getting rid of the pain, because like you said, we're going to, it's there, it's part of our human experience how can we provide more ways for people to actually be with it and be resilient to the pain that don't bring with them addiction and possible death and 
the law of accidents. <laughs> you know, it's all about creativity too, because what we're talking about here is also, you know, I mentioned tragedies and difficulties, but really, like, you don't need to have ever gone through anything to be in massive amounts of pain. And the reason for that is, is that I'm certain that if you're listening to this podcast, you have no idea how you got here. You don't know what this planet is. You don't know from where you came. You don't know what God is or if there is a God. You don't, you may believe in something and, you know, hallelujah for you, but like, we don't know anything and we also don't know where we're going and we're all going to die. We're hurtling towards this thing. Mm -hmm. There's a time, there's a time ticking <laughs> and it's, it's incredibly tragic and we're all aware of it, regardless of whether you're like me and your whole family has dropped dead and you're like, you're present to it to the point where of neuroses or if you're just someone who's never lost someone and then you're on an impending little tick time tick going like when am I when's the shoe gonna finally fall and I'm gonna lose my mom for the first time because mm. she's so old and like it's fine I know it's coming one mm -hmm, day mm -hmm. and maybe even before me you know so that's one thing but I think the creativity piece is like I just recently was speaking to a friend of mine who for his 40th birthday did something interesting where he actually had a funeral for himself and he um, for his 40th birthday because yeah. life, life begins at 40 is no, that what no, he was thinking <laughs> no he just decided that what better way to have to celebrate a birthday than to do a faux uh, burial ceremony so they buried him actually buried him well I think they like put him in a casket or okay. something I forget the details <laughs> yeah. but yeah and I've actually had friends who have been buried for this purpose just to like you know, just die for a minute, just to be with that. And But in his case, he was in a casket, I think, and there was an entire funeral led. All his friends came and they spoke, the, the eulogy was read of his life and what he'd done, and then his friends came and spoke on his behalf of how much he had meant to them. And, you know, so now I'm not saying that this is, you know, an idea for you, although I hope that I've inspired you to go try this for your 40th birthday. But I think it's actually very similar to what we do with Club Soda NYC. And I could actually see us doing something like that, right? Where we're like experimenting with mm, the question of how can I get creative with these problems? Mm. We are going to die, but mm. I want to have fun with this, you know, th and then what did he get to learn? I mean, he got to learn so much because you don't get to hear how much your friends love you because for some reason on your fucking 40th birthday, you're all just drinking and in Vegas and like no one mentions how much they love you. Or all the great things that you've done and all the impressions yeah. that you've made on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is a much better way to, but only if you got sober or only if you went out of your comfort zone, would you even be like, hmm, maybe I should have a burial for my, you know, like <laughs> these ideas do not come to the drinking. In fact, I'll say this, when I was drinking, I used to go to bars. And I would sit around sipping on my drink before I got super drunk. And I was never like a fall down drunk. I was just like a drinker. I was a pretty, mm. I was a professional drinker. Mm -hmm. Like I could drink till like seven in the morning because I was so good at it. And so it was like drinking, I was drinking, I was drinking. But I was just at the beginning of the night and I would look around and be like, wouldn't it be so cool if this was like a paint night? And everyone here was like painting together and writing poetry. And I remember my friends saying to me and being like, that's a cool idea. That's cool. It's a little crazy, but it's cool. And then as I got drunker and drunker, as the night progressed, I became the kind of person who could never possibly organize a paint poetry night. I couldn't because I was like wasted. 
And also I got from the alcohol the thing I was looking for from the painting and the poetry, which was connection, vulnerability, fucking sex, magic. I got all of it. So then I was like full. And then the voice was like, remember that painting idea you had? And you'd be like, oh, so stupid. (laughs) No, but the voice was like, remember that painting idea you had? That was, that was life. And you passed it by. You said, you know what? No, I don't have the energy. I don't have the guts. I don't have the pause in me. I just want what I want now. And I'm going to go take it. And I'm going to fucking take it. And I don't care. And I don't care enough. And I knew. And I couldn't. I had no power to stop. The cycle was so heavy that there was no way. And that's what we did with Club Soda was we mm. we said, like, now you're all going to freaking paint, you know, like, or whatever. We didn't do that. We didn't we, do a painting one. We but did we card definitely games. should we did, do a painting we one. We should. I think that would be great. Next, we could that's have next. people painting each other's faces. I think that would be like that would be a fun, <laughs> confronting, ice-breaking activity for That's people. That's definitely different. That'd yeah, really or cool. just touching each other, even being like, "Is that a paintbrush on my face? <laughs> You're freaking Blind me out." Yeah. Painting. Is it a paintbrush or a finger? Oh my god. <laughs> But yeah, I hear what you're saying, because when you first started saying, you know, drunk people don't do creative things. And I think about like when I was a, a drinker, I organized club nights and had did, you know, these crazy party, parties and fancy dress things that had themes. So there were things happening, mm-hmm. but none of it was outside of my comfort zone. None. It was very much kind of like within a cookie cutter, like this is what we do to organize fun. It was nothing was confrontational. There wasn't a space for vulnerability there. There wasn't like, let's actually sit and open our hearts with each other, you know? That would never have occurred to me. And also so many of the ideas that came up in those kind of drunken moments sitting in a pub corner, wouldn't it be fun if, ha, 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 that'd be brilliant. Oh my God, you're a genius. How many of those things actually came into being probably like five percent less yeah less yeah maybe exactly exactly because well five percent because i was like 23 and had loads of energy and the the life (laughs) i hadn't had any hadn't had that many kind of like hard knocks (laughs) making me go totally yeah like i would record a song once in a while you know like yeah it happened but it wasn't the full it wasn't like i was like off to madison square garden to go you know exactly (laughs) (laughs) so you mentioned that your father was an enlightened I've heard you describe him before as an enlightened shaman but on this in this conversation you described him as an enlightened being can we call him a shaman was he I called him that he he wouldn't have called himself a shaman he was an energy healer he was a psychotherapist he was a medical doctor Mm. he was an anarchist Mm -hmm. he was a man of faith Mm. yeah he was different Mm. And what were his views on alcohol? Oh, drinking. He loved drinking. He loved drinking. Yeah, he was a dr- <laughs> he was a drinker, and he would have told you he wasn't an alcoholic, and that he was a drinker. He said, "I am just a drinker," you know, because I could stop if I wanted to, and but I, and he did sometimes stop, but all in all, like he was a drinker. He was mm. a heavy drinker. Mm. He was a Russian. He drank mm-hmm. a lot of vodka. And he did a lot of energetic work with people, and he did real work. He saved many people's lives. He was an awakened spirit, but this was a shortcoming of his. And it wasn't the only one. It was drinking. It was womanizing. Mm. He was, you know, cheating on women. He was, you know, not... He wasn't fully landed in those departments. Mm. And, um, And so I worshipped him. And actually, so I just kind of assumed that drinking was a great idea and you can be awakened and drunk apparently and as I became 
closer to my awakening, when I got sober almost 11 years ago, it was really a surprise to me that I was going to need things that he didn't need. Like I needed community. I needed um, like people that I could turn to with stuff. I needed partnership. I needed sobriety, like total sobriety. Um, and I, I think I was annoyed about that at first because I really thought his path was much more, you know, kind of like appealing because it also didn't require relinquishing these things. I was <laughs> yeah, like, I right. want that. And I was like, wait, well, I have to. There's a lot of kind of perceived pleasure in that, right? Externally, you could look at that and say, he's getting to have his cake and eat it yes. almost, right? Yeah. But now looking back, I'm like, so I'm so That grateful. cake would have made you sick and you know yeah, it. Because we know. know about Bet Biet's thing with gluten now. Yeah. <laughs> Wheat is Wheat, the main, yeah. specifically. Yeah. Oh, damn it. <laughs> So that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, thinking about like, so you, when, when did you realize I need sobriety? Like, what was the moment for you? When did it come? Like, what did it, what, how was that packaged for you? Uh, I was doing fourth way work and Mm. I was meditating, uh, while doing heroin and cocaine. And I kept floating above myself in a tool that I describe in the book called divided attention. This is meditation that you can do while walking down the street or Mm -hmm. anything. And so I would float above myself and see myself from above. And I think I just one day floated above and saw that I was a heroin addict. And I had never seen that before. Like, even though I was a heroin addict and I was even heavily identified with being that, Mm. I think my perception of what it meant to be a heroin addict was one of imagination. I Mm. thought that it was cool, that it was fancy, that it was chic. I thought that it was, you know, some kind of coveted thing that people were really looking to get. And one day I floated above myself and I just saw that I was a weak, pathetic liar and that there was nothing fabulous about what I was doing and that what really all I was was um, hiding, but with really nice clothes on, you know what I mean, while mm-hmm. I did it. Hanging out with really quote-unquote cool people. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I was, like, you know, snorting coke off of toilets with celebrities, you know? Mm-hmm. That was, and I thought that was, like, my claim to fame like as if it just so you know in case you're listening to this and you are snorting cocaine off of toilet bowls with celebrities you have not arrived like <laughs> that is and having arrived myself at a place in life where I feel like I'm at a real station in life like I feel like I have a lot to be very um humbled by what's been created through me and I feel very um you know kind of just knelt over in surprise and awe of what's been possible through sobriety. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that those moments of having snorted cocaine off of toilet bowls with celebrities was by no means an arrival point of any kind. You know, maybe what it was was the universe or God or whatever you want to call it saying to me, you are filled with potential. And that's why we're planting this person here to remind you of how Hmm. powerful you could be. Mm -hmm. But my delusional self was like, this is it. Mm. And it was like, Mm. actually, this is the long laundry list of the things that you would have to do to become the kind of person who could actually utilize this opportunity in a way that will help and magnify a message to millions of people. You have a story about telling someone in a 
in a high state about writing a book or something, share that story. Can you remember the anecdote yeah, that I mean? I do. Yeah. yeah. I was at an after after party, which for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what that is, it's like not the after party, but it's like at 11 a.m. Like if you're still up and you're still snorting coke in the Lower East Side, this was where you were. So we were there and it was me and there was this famous comedian there and he was like listening to me go on about my brilliant shit because just FYI, I was brilliant then just like I'm brilliant now. And so I was going on and on as I do. And he was like, you are amazing. And I was like, I know. And he was like, you should write a book. And like, he's like, cause you have a book in you. Like you're just different. You're so different, you know? And I looked at him and in that moment, I didn't say it and I, I couldn't feel anything cause my face was so numb from having done coke for so many hours. But I knew in that moment that I was like, I could never write a book. And, and that, that was the saddest moment. It was like one of the saddest moments of my life. Like I was like, he's right. And I could never write a book. I could never because I'm such, I'm a heroin addict. Like he doesn't even know, you know? Mm. And it was like so heartbreaking to Mm. know that there was, and then now I've written a book. I know like (laughs) so funny because now that seems like no big deal. Cause once you get there, you're like, well, duh, I wrote a book. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then, but on the way, like to think like, I remember when I first got my book deal, which was, you know, now years ago, like I just was like, I have a book deal. Like what the, what are you talking about? You know? Mm hmm. Yeah, I'm happy. I remember to ask you to share that story because I think, again, there's the, there are these moments, you know, sometimes they get described as moments of clarity. Maybe there wasn't a moment of clarity for you, but it's just like a, whoa, what is actually happening here? Like, in what ways am I deluding myself? Am I being deluded by the messaging around what it means to be using these substances, you know? Totally. The, the way that it's also glamorized. Let's talk about you and rock and roll. Um <laughs> <laughs> this rock and roll attitude, right? Which has which has persisted from your kind of like quote unquote rock and roll years. I remember, you know, I mentioned that, you know, your book is not the average book on meditation. Um, Don't Just Sit There is a pretty rock and roll title for a med- book on meditation. And I would love to just hear your thoughts. Like I quote someone in my book called Tommy Rosen, who's the founder of an organization called Recovery 2.0, and it's largely about offering people the tools of meditation and yoga and kundalini yoga specifically to help them manage their recovery. Hmm. Um, And he, you know, quoted in the book saying that he believes that meditation is the opposite of addiction. And I wonder what you can share on that. Hmm. What would the, what's the Biet Simkin view on meditation Biet Simkin style of meditation, which is not, as we have established, your average, it's not your grandma's meditation. No. <laughs> meditation is the opposite of addiction. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I would agree, but that's the beautiful thing about, you know, me at parties is like, I somehow never do, which is, you know, beautiful to, to just know yourself, you know, mm-hmm. that I can always bring in a different angle. And it's mm-hmm. not disagreement, it's more contribution. Like, mm-hmm. how can I contribute another angle? I would say that it's not the opposite. Um, I would say that meditation, you know, when, when truly done, is, um, is, is being with what is, right? So, like, you can get into a meditative state, as I did when I first saw myself as a heroin addict. 
and then grace enters in, which is what we were talking about earlier in the beginning of the podcast about this third force that enters. And this third force now, we were saying, and this is not related to what a really third force is, we were saying, like, call us up if you're into, like, mm. you know, collaborating with us on making mm. Club Soda NYC a huge thing that we can do in other cities, right? That's great. You'd be like a great third person, like nice to meet you. But a third force really is a force that's from the invisible plane. It's something coming in that descends upon you. You can't dial it up. You can't force it. It's something that you surrender and you say like, okay, I'm going to just try. I'm just going to try meditating. I'm just going to try it. And I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm just going to try it. And then you try it and you try it and you try it and you try it. And then all of a sudden it's like weird things start to happen. And that's a third force. That's something that, like, can't be, you know, it can't be uh, forced. Mm. It just gets given. It's a gift. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so I would just say that meditation is that. It's great. You know, it's, it's the ability to push forward to try, and then grace is given, you know. And, I, you know, I don't even know what addiction is. I mean, addiction mm. is part of being human, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're addicted to alcohol or food or if you're addicted to sex or if you're addicted to gambling. Like, you're addicted to something. But mostly recognizing that your addiction is just in place to protect you from feeling your full aliveness. Like, med meditation allows you to see the distance between where you are now and the the fullness of your aliveness and then you can feel the burn of that distance mm -hmm. whereas when you're drinking or when you're in your addiction you can't feel that burn and without that burn it's like well, why would I go do anything mm. why would I change anything why would I try mm. I'm good mm. so if you're good it's like you're good Mm. You're not looking for this. You're not even fucking listening to this podcast. <laughs> that's not you. If you're listening to this podcast, you are feeling the burn. Yeah. There is a yeah. fire has been lit under your ass. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say ass anymore. And I've been in America for too ass. long. Ass. <laughs> a fire has been lit under your ass. And you are, you're feeling the burn. Your meditation like cushion is likely lit and you're ready to get up and actually make some of those changes in your life that, are, that you have been avoiding through using whatever numbing behaviors you may have been using, right? Mm, yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. I would just love to touch on, um, you have shared, you know, you, you've, you've experienced so much tragedy, loss and grief in your life. And I wonder what you can share about what sobriety or that level of presence can teach us about those experiences and those emotions and what they're here for and how we can navigate through them as well. Yeah, I would just say that if you're walking into this um, after a life of tragedy like I did, that, um, you know, that you will be protected, you will be cared for, because the good news is, is that buffers, the law of buffers is described in my book, will be removed piece by piece, layer by layer. You will never be stripped naked of all your buffers in one instance. You can't just, just because you stop drinking, it doesn't mean you're going to see the whole truth and nothing but the truth instantly. Thank God. Because if you did, you would like burn to the ground. It's just so painful. So, you know, I didn't, I don't even think I felt my feelings for the first five years of sobriety. I don't, I wasn't able to cry in public. I wasn't able, I could barely, I would tell people my daughter was dead in my arms and I would, wouldn't be able to cry while I said it. I talked to the, I talked about her death in the same way that I would talk about, like, going to get some orange juice from Whole Foods, you know? It's just like, yeah, get some orange juice, baby died, you know? And today, it's like, 
you know, not only am I able to connect to how, how sad it was to go through that, but also I'm able to connect to how much I love my current daughter. I just had a baby and it hurts so much to have that much love in your life. Mm-hmm. Like I just thought, I didn't even think I was going to like being a mom, you know, cause I just thought I'm too self-absorbed, but apparently love is greater than self-absorption if you can believe it. And I just, I'm so in love with her. And I can't believe that I went through what I went through. I cannot believe that I, I, I don't even know I fully got it until I had a daughter again. Mm. And then all of a sudden I was like, that I couldn't live through that now. I know that I could not withstand that. So I don't know how I did it then, you know? Well, I think you could withstand it. Yeah. I think what you've learned is that you are more resilient than you know, that we all are more resilient than we know, and that even in the Mm. face of unspeakable tragedies, our desire to Mm. be here, Mm. our desire to be, Mm. you know, can override everything. Yeah, I guess that's true. When we commit to ourselves and we commit to it, you know? Yeah, I think so too, but also there's a co-creative process too. And I think there's a way in which we play a role in our tragedies. And by me saying to you, like, I could not withstand the death of my current child. Mm. Her name is Cash. Mm -hmm. I could not withstand that. I'm Mm. saying something that's very true in Mm. that I can't withstand it. And that's a contract that I have with the universe. That means that that's not coming for me. You know what Mm. I mean? But whereas before... All I needed was to awaken. And I really wanted that more than anything in the world. And I remember when the universe said to me, but are you willing to give it all to us to have this awakening come to you? I remember being like, I don't care. I'll give you anything you want. I just want to wake up. And I, I tried and I tried. I, I mean, I should be dead with all the amount of drugs that I put in my body. And they killed my daughter, they, the universe. Mm-hmm. They burnt down my house killed my best friend they fucking killed my dad and all the time that all that was happening I really believed that I was being gifted the opportunity to awaken but when you awaken you no longer have to bear these things anymore you can say okay I've been given a lot of pain but there's a reason for it and now I'm gonna go do something with this life I'm gonna make a really purposeful imprint And I'm going to contribute in a way that is specific to me and my genius. But when you get into that zone, the world isn't trying to hit you with a bunch of tragedies anymore. Because the world is just now co-conspiring to help you do the thing that Mm. it was trying to help you do Mm. all along. And you know, because you're listening to this right now, that there was something that you've been sent to do. And you know that you've been saucing it up, covering it with the sauce. And that's, it's the most painful there's nothing more painful. It's been hard. I'm not going to lie that becoming an entrepreneur and starting a meditation experience that I do globally and like becoming a published author, oh, is all fucking a piece of cake. No, it required real work, but nothing was as hard as lying. Nothing was as hard as covering up my true self and my purpose on this planet by bullshitting my way around. <laughs> nothing. Well, I was going to ask you as my final question. You've been described as the David Bowie of spiritual teachers. Is that how you say Bowie in, in, in English? Oh, Bowie. Bowie. David Bowie. David Bowie. Bowie. Yeah, we say Bowie. Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. And isn't he British? <laughs> so many fun pronunciation things. It's amazing. 
Um, you've been described as the David Bowie of spiritual teachers. <laughs> what is your definition of rock and roll now? And I kind of feel like you just gave it to me in that last answer. But mm-hmm. like, what is your definition of rock and roll now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, <laughs> it is becoming David Bowie, right? It's, but it's, it's saying like, I don't care. I don't care who I have to lose. I don't care. You know, I don't care how uncomfortable I have to get. I don't care how weird this is going to be. I don't care anything. All that I care about is that my willingness to try to be connected to the invisible and then see what that union provides or creates in the world, in the, in the three-dimensional space. That, to me, is rock and roll. To say there's something that's invisible, that's unprovable, that's it, no one will ever know. I want to know that thing, and then I want to fuck that thing. And then I want to have babies with that thing. And then those babies, in some cases, are going to be books, or it's going to be Pulitzer Prizes, it's going to be running marathons, it's going to be helping you know, people in Rwanda. It's, you, you have a particular way in which fucking the invisible is going to show up for you, but that is rock and roll. That's rock and roll. And, and you know it too and that's why music is so beautiful because music is the sound of fucking the invisible right it's fucking the unknown and there's a soundtrack to that (laughs) there are going to be so many great quotes i pull from this interview (laughs) music is the sound of fucking the invisible (laughs) specifically my record the lunar just in case (laughs) i'll include a link to that in the show notes yeah, thank you as always for bringing it in your own incredible, unique way. Um, I'm sure that you have inspired and entertained and enthralled our listeners this episode. Thank you so much. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> so, what do you think? Is it Bowie or Bowie? <laughs> No, seriously, I really would love to know what you think about this episode. Um, We went to some deep and in places quite dark places. And I would love to have your feedback, have your thoughts. If it brought anything up for you that feels painful or difficult, please also reach out to Biet or myself on social media. Um, and we can help guide you towards spaces that you are going to be able to get the support that you need. Please don't do this alone. There are many ways that we can medicate and there are many pains in the world. And luckily, thankfully, the more of us that are getting okay with talking about that, the more the more um, we're able to help each other and, and walk each other home, as it were. So yeah, again, please reach out. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether meditation is the opposite of addiction. Um, whether our spiritual practice is entwined with sobriety and our and our practice of getting sober from numbing substances. Whether when whether getting sober curious was the moment that you began to awaken to the real forces that are at play in your life and how you may be able to work with them versus having them working against you. Like I said, big subjects. Please reach out. We'd love to have a conversation with you about this one. And I will see you again soon. This podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com, www.aloeaudio.com.